As soon as we added toilet paper hanging, we knew we needed this. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the soothing puzzle game Unpacking with my guest, Ren Breyer. Hi, I'm Ren. I'm the creative director of Unpacking. Unpacking is a gentle puzzle game in which you learn about a person's life and relationships over the course of a couple of decades by unpacking their possessions each time they go through a move, stacking books on shelves, plates in cupboards, clothes in drawers, and so on. Light limitations restrict where you can put these objects away, and through these intuitive rules, the game tells an almost wordless story. If you're listening to this episode on the day it came out, then Unpacking was released today. But don't worry, we keep spoilers light and don't reveal anything about the parts of the game that elevated Unpacking from something I was excited to play to one of my favorite games of the year. So the first question, I guess, is an obvious one, but I think with a game like this, uh, it kind of needs to be told. Where did the idea come from? Because it is so different. Yeah, it's interesting at this point, we've got a well-rehearsed answer for this because everyone <laughs> wants to know that. So the idea came from when my partner moved in with me. We were unpacking his stuff and I realized there was something kind of game-like about unpacking things. So you take things out of one box and empty it and then you unlock the box underneath and you're like collecting sets of items from the different boxes. And there's just this general like sense of intrigue and surprise and delight when like things come out of the boxes, especially because we didn't label any of them. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, there's some things about this that are very game-like. Maybe this could be a game. And it was kind of a joke because my partner is always coming up with game ideas. And I usually don't, but he's always like trying to encourage me because um, we're both game developers. And yeah, so he, he kept encouraging me and being like, uh, okay, so, so in this unpacking game, what's, what's going to happen? Like, how would this work? And I was like, oh, um, I, I guess, you know, this is the idea. This is what you do in it. These would be the main mechanics, the main verbs you have and so on. And then after that, I guess after a few days, I was like, you know what? This could be interesting if we like had a story where you followed one character through the different moves of their life from, you know, childhood to adulthood. And it's funny just how early we had like the story beats, almost all of them. Yeah, it's weird. The idea became fully formed like pretty fast. Yeah, I was going to ask how much the game changed over its development, kind of from conception to release. But you're saying it basically was fully formed when you first thought of the idea or did you add stuff later on? So in some ways, it was fairly fully formed because I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, it hasn't changed at all because it has. But a lot of the things are still the same. And like the number of levels, for example, initially, we had seven planned. So we added one more somewhere in the middle. Level five was originally not there. And it mm. felt like it needed to be there to uh, make some things work better. But in terms of like the direction of the game, something I guess that, that changed quite a bit was initially we imagined the game more as a, as a puzzle game where you're like Tetrising your items together and trying to fit them in into quite like cramped places. And it became more of a self-expression game because we found that, you know, because this is a game about really familiar spaces and items, 
people expect to be able to put things where they can put them in real life. If the game is being really judgy about where they can put things, it's very frustrating for players. So we're like, okay, what the game wants to be is less of a puzzle game and more of a game where people can just kind of zone in and decorate to their liking and the puzzle is a bit more uh, like a side thing. Describing it as a self-expression game is interesting. Is that why you added a photo mode? Because that's something I noticed that maybe wasn't there in the demo, I feel like. Oh, yeah. So in the demo, we left out like the photo mode and we left out a few other features. I don't know if you noticed the GIF maker. No. Yeah. So uh, we've actually very recently added a little bit of tutorialization so people would notice that it was like literally the last thing we added to the game. My partner was like, oh my God, please, this is so last minute. And I was like, no, this is important. People will miss the <laughs> gift maker. So now this is proving me right. Um, <laughs> yeah. In the album, on any page, there's a little video camera icon that you can click and see like a fast forward playthrough of your entire level. And it can record a GIF or you can just, you know, record your own video of it. So how much of that is feedback from testing and because you saw that people wanted to express themselves and how much of it is canny marketing, knowing that if you give people the <laughs> tools to share things on social media, it will advertise your game? Um, hmm. It's a bit of both, you know, like things have come from all kinds of members of the team. Like I can't take credit for the GIF idea. That was Sanatan, who is, uh, he's one of the co-founders of Wishbeam. He's actually not working on unpacking, but he's been like a big champion for it. And uh, the first time that we put the game in front of him, one of the things he said was like, you should add an option to like record fast forward GIFs. Cause so, so the game, like it first, kind of went viral because of uh, a GIF we posted, like a fast forward GIF of a kitchen. So we were like, okay, people like these GIFs, people like watching these. And so Sonatan was like, you should give the option to record those. And we're like, hmm. And so like, that's something that had been on, on our mind for like more than two years before we finally got to implement it, you know? It's a lot of features like that. So you mentioned that GIF that went viral. Were you expecting that reaction? Like when you put that out there, were you thinking this is a game loads of people will love or did you think it would be really niche? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I, I thought I was making a really niche game. We were just like, we, we made an account for it. And that was the first GIF we posted on the account. Like that wasn't a retweet of just the stuff we were posting on our own personal socials. Yeah, we thought we were making a niche game. We actually thought that it was the kind of game that could never go viral. We even like said that outright to someone who was like giving us a talk at uh, Stugan, which I can tell you about later. So someone was giving us a talk about like making games that like can attract attention online. And I was like, okay, but what do we, what do we do with a game like ours that like has no chance of ever going viral? Like what kind of audience do we reach out to? And then the game went viral and I was, I like reached out to the guy and I was like, Hey, the game went viral and he's like, Oh, cool. <laughs> That's amazing. So tell me more about Stugan then. Like what did you get from that experience and how did that contribute to the game? So Stugan is a games accelerator program in Sweden that accepts people from all over the world. They take something like 15 teams every intake and they get to go be in Sweden for um, two months in a cabin in the woods and essentially like a ski resort in the summer <laughs> and make games together. It's like little teams of one to three people. So people just pitch their games, like it could be something that is brand new or something that you've been working on for a while, and 
if it gets accepted, you get to go to Stugan and work on it there. What did you get out of the experience as far as this game in particular? Like, how did it help with the development? It meant that we got a ton of testing for the game because there were always other people around, other developers and like visitors to Stugan. Like, there's like friends of Stugan and like mentors and stuff coming to visit and giving us talks and things, and that really helped. But any mentor or visitor that came, they'd be like, do you want to try everyone's games? And so we got a ton of testing through that, and it taught me really like how valuable it is to get the game in front of people really, really early on. And, you know, it helped shape the game. It helped us see what was good, what was bad, what to lean into, what to put in more of, and what to tone back. Like the uh, judginess, for example, was like one of the things that went early, thanks to Stugan. Is there a particular value to getting testing from other developers versus just kind of regular video game players? I would say that you need both. It's really important to get like just regular players of all kinds to play like both, you know, more core gamers and are more casual. It'll give you different perspectives. But developers, I guess the thing is that when a player plays your game and gives you feedback like that this or that bothered them, they're always right about their feelings about it. They're always like, okay, something here was not good for them. But they're usually not right about what caused that or how to fix that. And I think maybe a developer could give you a little bit better insight to that. So if you want an example, it's like someone was telling me, oh, they couldn't put the washing basket like in this one spot in the bathroom in the final level. And I was like, oh, I was sure that we allow you to put it there and that it fits there. And after a little while, I realized, like after messing around a bit, I realized that she meant that she couldn't put it there next to the laundry hamper. They didn't fit there together at the same time. And I was like, okay, that's a fair criticism. Like some people would want both of them there and it looks like they could fit, but they just barely don't. So I added another few like nodes there of the grid. Oh, so nodes of the grid. That's a little peek behind the curtain. <laughs> I'm really interested in the way that this this whole thing works because something that people really loved about the gifts was the way that you could kind of slot all these different items into different spaces and they kind of changed depending on where you put them. So give us a kind of a broad idea of how that works behind the scenes. So my role on the team is very diverse. I do art and like design, level design, UX, UI, and also production and business development, all kinds of things. But on the actual game itself, I think my biggest roles are art direction and level design and general design. So I did all the level designs and unpacking but that also involved doing the first pass of the art of every single level. And those two were so intrinsically tied together. I um, just worked straight in an art program to draw these rooms. So basically, I would draw a room and it would be like really basic. Everything would be really blocky. And then I'd put in grids where items can go. So they'd be like on shelves, on the bed, inside like cupboards, inside drawers, and like align them just so, so everything felt right. And then I would take this into Unity and construct the room out of like all these pieces of the furniture. Like I'd have to split up all the furniture into bits that go in front and bits that go behind. There's a lot of layers involved. <laughs> so the game is built entirely on grids. You've got grids on every surface that you can place items on. And I mark like which grids you can leave stuff on permanently and which grids you can't. 
and items fit on this grid like very neatly. So everything is made of these little blocks. So our minimum unit is like 10 centimeters cubed items, I guess. There are smallest ones. And then we construct the bigger items out of like more of these cubes. Okay. So kind of like Lego, I guess. Yeah. So all the items fit inside cubes. And even though some of them have very like non-square shapes, we always try to make sure that they take up as much of the kind of volume of the cube as they can. So over the course of development, there's been a lot of like adjusting items to be a little bit wider or a little bit taller because they'd be like an item that like, it looks like it can fit in this cupboard, but it doesn't. So we're like, okay, the item needs to be a bit taller then. So it looks like it can't. Mm. Because of the kind of zoomed out view of the levels, so you've got this kind of, you can see the whole room at once, right? And you've got these kind of tiny objects, like you said, like a 10 centimeter square. Some of them are difficult to identify and you haven't really used text. So how did you approach the challenge of making those very small objects recognizable without being able to kind of label them? Hmm. Yeah, it was really important to us that items would be recognizable without text. Because like a lot of people are just like, why don't you just have labels for all the items? Or like you can click a thing and it'll tell you what the item is. And I'm like, but that's part of the puzzle is figuring out what the items are. If we just gave you an option to check what it is, that's what you will always do. You won't stop to think about it for as long. And it's also okay if an item is not instantly recognizable. Like it's okay if all you can tell is like, well, this is a kitchen appliance because you know what you can do with a kitchen appliance and you know where that needs to go. Hmm. So in terms of how to make them recognizable, it's a lot of back and forth between me and our other artists. And sometimes we would remake items that were harder to recognize. All of the items, all of the smaller items rather, are a bit chunked up. So if you think about it, like nail clippers in the game, for example, are really large. They're like 10 centimeters. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was like as little as we could make them and make them recognizable and make them take up the right amount of space. Mm -hmm. We've also got like an eyelash curler that's like... 20 centimeters or something you know it's like it doesn't make sense <laughs> if you really think about it but it's like eh, it's it's close enough that it feels okay and you can tell the details as you mentioned earlier the kind of level of challenge and the restrictions placed on the player the, the judgment as you said are kind of very light so for example sometimes one of the boxes will contain objects that are actually for a different room than the box was in but not too often and you know at the end of the level anything that's not in the right place will kind of flash but you're quite loose with what you define as the right place how did you decide which of those rules to enforce as far as object placement? And were you ever tempted to just make it completely free play? Yeah, so there always has been a bit of a temptation there, but it's always been such an important core part of the game that like the character that you're playing is not you. We want you to understand that this is someone else and they have preferences. And those help us with the puzzle aspect of the game as well. Like some of the most... I think important moments of the game have to do with the character going, no, you can't put that there. And we try to keep that very light touch. We wanted to have the players trust that like, when we tell them an item can't go here, it's because that makes sense. So for the most part, we try to make sure that items have a lot of places they can go, like at minimum, it'd be two places. But often it's a lot more than that. And they can also go to different rooms and stuff, which was a huge logistical nightmare design-wise to make sure that any item can go in any room that makes sense in any level. 
but uh, it felt important. Basically, again, like because this is a game that's in such a familiar environment, players have certain expectations of how things should work. Unlike if you were like on an alien planet and dealing with like weird alien things, you'd be like, well, I trust whatever you say about how this thing works. But you're like, no, I know where a kitchen pot can go and I leave mine on the stovetop. So like, why is your game not letting me do that? Mm. When we tell the player that item can't go there, we don't want the player to think, but why like that makes me annoyed we want them to think oh of course that makes sense so that was Mm. that was our guiding principle what made it a logistical nightmare to make objects available in multiple rooms so we have i think a thousand and forty ish items in the game and 35 rooms altogether and i think like something like seven room types So whenever I make an item, I have to define where it can go. Each surface is labeled like internally. So, so for example, in a bedroom, you'd have floor, you'd have shelves, cupboard, desk, bed, under pillow, all kinds of zones like that. And so for each item, I look through the drop down for that room and mark which surfaces can it be on in that zone. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and if it <laughs> and so if this item appears like just in the first level which is just the kids room then it's it's not too bad because it's just the one room and I don't have to worry about the rest of them but some items travel all the way to like late in the game and essentially you should be able to move them into every room. So, for example, if there is an item that's like say a music player, right? And it's in the bedroom let's say it starts off in the bedroom and you're like, actually, I want this to be out in the living room. If I hadn't zoned it for the living room, then the player would be like, but wait, why can't this be in the living room? Mm. That doesn't feel right. So sometimes people would find these little things. Someone, one streamer I saw playing the game wanted to put a uh, cup of water on the bedside table and he wasn't able to. And he was like, oh, that's the one thing that bothered me about the game. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, I never thought about this. It didn't occur to me to let the player just leave the cup on the bedside table. I feel like, yeah, that should be valid. And so after I saw that, I did allow that in the game. Oh, wow. <laughs> did you tell them? Uh, No, but maybe I'll get to you one day. I've never spoken to them. <laughs> There's been uh, quite a few things that have come from playtests because we've shown the demo in so many places. So we've seen people play it at live shows, but also I watched a lot of streams like I said, I watched yours. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it, by the way, when you noticed that the boxes obscured the drawer in the kids' room and... Once the box was gone, you could see the drawer and you were like, oh, is this intentional? That's clever. And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of the demo, how did the demo go generally? Like, was it stressful to put it together and figure out a vertical slice and things like that? 
so figuring out a vertical slice was actually pretty straightforward for us because it is just the first two levels of the game. Mm-hmm. Our, our very first demo was actually the prototype that we made, which was the kitchen. It was like uh, the level eight kitchen, which has a ton of items and a ton of space in it. And we decided to go with the kitchen to begin with for our like test level because we didn't even want to like go into the storytelling aspect of the game yet. We just wanted to prove out the mechanics first. And we're like, okay, kitchens, like, there's a lot of items in kitchens that are not personal and that I can just, like, crank out a ton of items. I can think of a lot of items that could go in a kitchen. So we ended up with, I think, 70 items in that in that first kitchen. And even just playing that, people seemed pretty into it. And it took people a lot longer than we expected as well. Like, that kitchen took, I think, 20 to 30 minutes for for people to play. Yeah, maybe more like 20. And so once we were done with that. We were like, all right, let's start building the levels. And we actually just built all the levels chronologically, like started with the kids' room and then just went level by level. And with the demo that we put up online and showed at uh, at later shows and such, we were like, okay, so to prove out the storytelling, we need to have at least two levels. But because the game itself is not huge, it's only eight levels total, we don't want to give too much away. So we were like, okay, so we need to show time progression. And our first two levels are our two smallest levels, pretty much. Mm. So we were like, let's start with those. And the length ended up being pretty good because playing them together takes people like half an hour to 40 minutes, usually, sometimes more. Yeah, that worked out. And when you were watching people stream the demo, apart from getting ideas for changes to make to the game and things like that, what else did you gain from that experience? Like, did you notice that people played it very differently? So I think the most informative playthroughs that we saw were like some of the earliest ones because we were still like learning a lot about our game. So the first really important thing we learned was that the game is fun for other people to watch. So we thought that we were making like a really solitary kind of experience that you play on your own with headphones on and you just, you know, zone out and and play this game. And turns out people like to do this with a bunch of people with them or at least like you know one person and like someone is backseat driving someone's heckling you know the game teaches you a lot about the person who is playing because of the choices that they're making and everyone has opinions about where items need to go in a house so it was really fun to see people reacting to other people's playthroughs So the first time we noticed this was when we showed the game at Day of the Devs. And at Day of the Devs, the way they had it set up was like all of the monitors that people played on were like quite high up and were very large and people were playing standing up. So you could see from the line the game quite well and you could see what people were doing, the choices they were making. So people were standing in the line and like making little comments to one another about what the person that was currently playing was doing. (laughs) And they were already interacting with the game and thinking about what they would do once they played. Like we thought, oh, you know, they're already seeing the whole demo. Like they probably don't have much of a reason to play now, but it's like, no, that actually motivated them even more to want to play Mm. because they were like, I can do this better. (laughs) That person was doing it weird. (laughs) Speaking of personal decisions when playing the game, at what point did you decide to provide the option to hang the toilet roll backwards or forwards? (laughs) As soon as we added toilet paper hanging, we knew we needed this. (laughs) Strong opinions about which way it should go, but... 
we wanted anyone to be able to hang it however they wanted, and we figured it would be something kind of funny. <laughs> the big decision was which would be the default. <laughs> so we decided to go with the version that we thought like this is the correct way as the default one. But my partner Tim was like, maybe we should just make it like the opposite way, just to troll people or like to force them to realize <laughs> that you can rotate it. And you were like, no, I can't bear it. Yeah, I was like, a lot of people probably won't realize that you can rotate it and we'll just be frustrated. I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> this game is not meant to stress people out. <laughs> and the default way is is forwards, right? Yes, over. Do you agree? I agree. Don't worry. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think it is then that appeals to people most about this concept, about this game? Why do people love to play it? Oh, that's a really hard question. Why do you love to play it? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, when I first saw the concept, I was like, it feels like this game is made for me because I'm a person who's moved house more than 20 times in my life. Oh, wow. And yet I love to pack boxes and I love to unpack things and to decide where things go. It gives my life a sense of order. I guess, as you can probably guess, being someone who's moved more than 20 times, my life has been pretty chaotic. And the ability to choose where things go and to know where everything is kind of gives me a feeling of order. I guess I feel like a lot of video game players probably have that as well, because a lot of games are instinctively about cleaning up, you know, like about getting rid of all the enemies, collecting all of the things that are in the world and making it tidy again. So I guess that's my instinct. It just feels like a very video gamey thing. But I don't know. What do you think? I think you answered the question better than I could have. Because um, <laughs> I... I was thinking about like how I would answer as you were answering. Uh, thank you for letting me stall for time. But yeah, it is very much that thing of like every game is essentially about bringing order to chaos. And this just takes it very literally. Mm. It's got elements from other games like The Sims and Animal Crossing and whatever else that like let you make a home like nice but it's also in addition to that got some other things. It's got like the storytelling and you know a bunch of other elements. But in terms of why, yeah, why that's really appealing to people, it's like, I think it's a small space that you can control and you, you can make it, like, pleasant for yourself. And I think, like, more and more these days, I think we need a little bit of space that we can control. <laughs> so, uh, life is so chaotic. And I think organizing things, even around the house in real life, like, gives me a sense that I am in control that things are not as chaotic as they seem most of the time. And so I kind of wanted to give that to people in game form and take away all the lousier parts of unpacking, like lifting heavy things and uh, <laughs> you know all the struggle and the mess. And you can instantly put it away and come back to it whenever and you're not like, oh no, I'm living in a mess now. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the storytelling aspect then, so each level moves the story forward a few years. You're often in a new location, though not always. How did you go about designing the rooms so that they reflected the time in which they're set? So like, obviously, the first one's in the 90s. Did you research like 90s toys? Uh, so, so this game, I would say the premise and the time period came about out of um, laziness. Like <laughs> I wanted to go with something that I would not have to research really heavily. I am not a very confident storyteller or story writer. I am a pretty new game designer, I would say. I My background is in art. And so this is my first foray into game design. I, I wanted to do something that felt within my wheelhouse, within my frame of reference. So 
my partner and I, we have like eight years uh, between us in age. So we set the character's age right in the middle, like between our two ages. We both essentially grew up in the 90s. He grew up a little bit more in the 80s, but you know, there's a bit, fair bit of crossover. And yeah, it did involve some research. Like we were like, what year did the Tamagotchi come out? Or like, <laughs> all right, we're we're safe in like 97 then. There's Tamagotchi, we can put that in. So we, we'd check these things. But there was a lot of like referencing our own lives and our friends' lives. So for example, I never owned like a Simon, but I had friends who had a Simon mm. and it feels very much like a relic of the 90s. So it felt like it had to be in there. Without spoiling it then, Unpacking really cleverly uses its mechanics to tell its story. Did you know right away when you knew that you wanted a story, what story you wanted to tell and then kind of design mechanics to to fit that? Or did you look at the mechanics you had? So, you know, placing objects so they fit appropriately in the space and, and highlighting ones that aren't correctly placed and then kind of figure out the story after that? It's kind of both, which I know is kind of a boring answer, but it is like the story is influenced by the mechanics and the mechanics are influenced by the story. Mm. And when we came up with the story it was before we even made the prototype, we just like had talked about what we wanted the mechanics to be. And then we went, okay, so when we want the story to be like this, and these are some of the things we can do with that. So for example, I, I will talk a little bit like very mild spoilers about levels, say three and four. So we talked about how in the first level, we wanted it to be small and very self-contained. So we wanted it to be a childhood room and you only unpack that room because you're a kid and you don't have a lot of responsibility beyond your own stuff. So it worked really well for tutorializing the game. But then the next level, we wanted to show, okay, now we are introducing multiple rooms. So you have three rooms, but they're all quite small. And then the next level, we're like introducing that sometimes you live with other people. And so there's items already all over the house that don't belong to you and you can't move them. Mm. And we thought that was important because it reflects kind of the character's state of mind. You move into a house with people, even if they're your friends already, which in this case, like our intention was that they were. Even then, you don't want to like start going, well, I'm putting all my DVDs here, so I'm moving yours. Like that would be mm. really weird. Like if a housemate moved in and did that, I would be like red flags, you know, <laughs> you can't move other people's stuff. You just arrange your life kind of around theirs. And then in the next level, you move in with uh, the character's first boyfriend. And because of the level of closeness, you're allowed to move this person's stuff around and it's interesting because players had just played a level where you can't move stuff. And so we were worried like, oh, will will this confuse people? Will they understand? So we had to design the level so that people had to. They had mm. to move his stuff. So it was, it was pretty fun organizing it in a way that was like as like taking up space as possible <laughs> to force <laughs> the player to be like, come on, move your stuff. And it kind of fed into the story like... We always wanted this relationship to be maybe a little bit like not so good, like this probably wouldn't last sort of mm. relationship, but it became a little bit like the character's personality, I think, kind of grew out of the mechanics as well. So like how he th takes up all this space and doesn't make space for you, mm. the main character of the game. And so you have to make space for yourself. And that kind of gives personality to both of these characters through the gameplay. 
playing unpacking and especially those moments that you just mentioned really reminded me of playing Florence. And there are lots of other games that that try to do this kind of storytelling without words. Environmental storytelling, right, is a huge thing. It's obviously a huge thing in unpacking. What other games do you think use this kind of storytelling really well? So our inspirations for unpacking, yeah, I'd say Florence was definitely one, like the the whole moving scene. But, Mm. But in general, like telling the story of a character's life with very few words and through like these little snapshots really appealed to me. But another inspiration was Gone Home. Mm. Now Gone Home has like audio diaries and it has like letters that you can read and such, but it is a game entirely told through, well, almost entirely told through environmental storytelling. Like you are traversing a house and picking up little clues about several lives and learning their entire story and it's like I love that so much so that was something I wanted to do with unpacking but like with lower fidelity items (laughs) you don't get to hear audio logs and you don't get to like read people's notes or to each other or you know pick up an item and like find that it has like a little label on the back that says something but we were like what can we do with items that are this small and this low fidelity and still tell a story How much do you think you can learn about a person in real life from the objects in their home? A lot. A lot. I think definitely a lot of the inspiration came from like, you know, that time that Tim and I were unpacking his stuff. But some of it also came from when we were packing up his stuff in the first place, (laughs) because we had only been dating for, well, you know, it it was a while, like a year and a half. But like, it's very intimate to like help someone pack up their life and help them decide what they are going to take with them because we were kind of downsizing. My place was smaller. And you get to hear the stories of all of the items where they came from and stuff. So like scarves given by friends to him or like, uh, oh, this was my first game for this console or I got this at this time when we were showing our previous game in Japan, you know, so everything has a story. And I think, you know, I know materialism is bad, but um, <laughs> items like carry a lot of meaning for us and they have stories. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's so interesting what you can learn from them. And there are some things that you will just have to infer if you don't have the person there to tell you, oh, this came from here. But there's some things that that you can kind of figure out by yourself, like a detective. Tim actually gave this example the other day, which I quite liked, which is on our bookshelves, we have two copies of the uh, Animator Survival Kit, which is a classic like book that any animator is, is a must-have for them. <laughs> and we have two of these, and it, we were thinking, like, what would someone who was going through our shelves think when they notice that we have two of these and in our specific case it's because both of us are originally animators and we each individually bought one and had it for many many years and we moved in together and now we have two but you can come up with a couple of different scenarios like maybe you have one for the office and one that's like serving as a coffee table or like, you know, one you used to take to work and have a work desk and one at home. It's interesting that you can come up with more than one scenario. And that's actually been something that's been really important to us with the game. Because sometimes we have people ask us, okay, but what does this mean? And like, what is this item for real? Like, we've had people ask us, is the drawing of the fox girl in the 
second bedroom is that her fursona and i was like i'm not going to tell you like if you think that's her fursona that's great you can be like she's a furry that's great but it's just important to us that people can interpret the game in more than one way like Mm -hmm. yes we had a certain thing in mind when we made an item but like the story doesn't just belong to us anymore once you're playing it once you're playing it it's it's your story and whatever you get out of it is is great So the game is full of little touches that kind of coax a smile out of players who've been paying attention, I guess. So one of my favorites is there's the mug from the earlier year and then the next year it's cracked. So it's in the bathroom now and you're putting toothbrushes in it, right? Like such a familiar thing. What's your favorite example of that kind of little touch in the game? Oh, that's hard. We put in so many little (laughs) things like that. I really like the chicken collection. <laughs> I was like, I am designing these personally. I don't care. I'm, I know they're not even that important, but I'm making each one of these myself. Uh, basically, I have always been a collector. That's probably not surprising considering I made a game all about items. <laughs> so I wanted our main character to have some kind of collection and somehow it ended up being these little plush toys of chicks. And so you start off with like one like big mama chicken and one chick. And then the next level you have like two more little chicks. And every every level you get like one or two more and they just keep multiplying. That's that's <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> it's a nice way to imagine the life continuing on past the end of the game as well. <laughs> Giant chicken farm. <laughs> Unpacking is out now on PC, Xbox and Nintendo Switch. So do check it out. If you share your gifts on Twitter, you can tag Ren at W-R-E-N-E-G-A-D-E-Y and me at Jerrica Weber. If you're listening to this episode on the day it came out, then I'll be streaming Unpacking live on Twitch tomorrow, November 3rd at 8pm UK time. Follow me at twitch.tv forward slash Jerrica Weber so you know when I'm live. This podcast is on Twitter at TalkingSimPod, and you can even email us at TalkingSimulatorPod at gmail.com to suggest games or guests, or just let us know what you think of the show. Though the best way to do that, as always, is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at J-A-Z-Z-M-I-C-K-L-E. Talking Simulator is mixed by Lemington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C P A R K E S. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. Yeah, you know, I've been really looking forward to this call because, like, there's not a lot of people I can talk to who have played the whole game. Yeah. <laughs>